0: Welcome back to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This one from our Legends series is the story of Marine Major Greg Pappy Boynton and the Black Sheep Squadron fighter pilots of World War II fame. For 80 consecutive days, they fought to destroy the Japanese Air Force in the skies over the Solomon Islands in the Pacific in an effort to break the Japanese stronghold on those islands, which we badly needed as air bases if we had any chance of winning the war in the Pacific. You are listening to the sounds of an F4U Corsair, a clean, sleek aircraft with a 2,000-horsepower engine. Its rated speed of 415 miles per hour at sea level made it the fastest aircraft in the Pacific theater at the time, when the U.S. forces were pushing through the Solomons, trying to get close to Japan. The Corsair carried 6 50 .50-caliber machine guns, three mounted on each wing. We'll meet the F4U Corsair when Boynton reaches a Spiritu Santu in the Solomons, in 1943, the squadron took on the name Black Sheep, primarily due to Boynton's reputation as a troublemaker, a tough fisted brawler, and an officer who didn't do well when it came to taking orders. If you think it got the name because the young men who formed that group were a bunch of losers and misfits, think again. That was hype, created by the popular 70s TV show, The Black Sheep. If anyone was the misfit, it was Boynton. He had garnered a number of enemies in the corps hierarchy and the fact that he had an affair with one of his commanding officer's wives didn't help him. While training at Quantico, he decided to expand his flight training exercises to include a mock air battle, ran into flight trouble, and had to perform a dead stick landing on the Quantico rifle range. The stories continued, and he was building a reputation as a hardcore but capable misfit. However, it was exactly what Admiral Bull Halsey was looking for when it came to choosing a commander for a newly formed fighter squadron in the Pacific in 1943. The Japanese seemed unstoppable at that point in the war, and the Allies needed some good news. We needed something that would shake up the Japanese and provide a boost in morale. Boynton was to do all that and much more. He was born in Coeur Idaho. His parents were divorced when he was one year old, and his mother married E.J. Hallenbeck, when he was three. So Greg thought Hallenbeck was his real father until he reached his teens. Greg was a hard worker, becoming a 1934 engineering graduate from University of Washington. By 1935, he was married and bogged down with a safe but dull job as a draftsman at Boeing Aircraft, but he wanted to fly them and not design them. He wanted to join the Marine Aviation Corps, but they wouldn't take married men, so he suddenly became Greg Boynton, single man. The Marines taught him how to fly. All through his training period, he kept his family hidden, paying for a room on base for himself and an apartment off base for his family. That put him in deep debt. By 1941, his marriage fell apart and he was in danger of being cashiered by the Marine Corps. That was when opportunity knocked in the form of Claire Chenault and the all-volunteer group, AVG, flying for China. These were mercenaries making pretty good money, $500 a month, plus a bonus for each Japanese plane shot out of the sky. This was just prior to Pearl Harbor. Japan had invaded China and by 1942 controlled two-thirds of China as well as most of the Pacific. China's defenses at that time were not a match for the Japanese and their air force had been destroyed. So they hired mercenaries and there were many pilots from the U.S. and Canada who wanted to fight. Boynton had worn out his welcome with the Marine Corps and signed up badly in need of the money. The first American volunteer group, AVG, of the Chinese Air Force in 1941-42, nicknamed the Flying Tigers, comprised pilots from the United States Army Air Corps, the Navy, and Marine Corps, recruited under presidential authority and commanded by Claire Lee Chenault. The shark-faced nose art of the Flying Tigers remains among the most recognizable image of any individual combat aircraft or combat unit of World War II. Previously in the 30s, a number of American pilots, including Annapolis graduate Frank Tinker, had flown combat during the Spanish Civil War, engaging Nazis and fascist Italians. Members were organized into the Yankee squadron. Chenault spent the winter of 1940-41 in Washington, supervising the purchase of 100 Curtis P-40 fighters, Diverted from a Royal Air Force order. The Royal Air Force at that time deemed the P-40 obsolete, and the recruiting of 100 pilots and some 200 ground crew and administrative personnel that would constitute the first AVG began. This is a good place to mention that you can see a number of World War II fighter planes and lots of other military aircraft and schedule rides on some of them at the Military Aviation Museum in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is one of the best aviation museums in the world. If you're planning a trip anywhere near the east coast of the U.S., get in touch with these guys and they'll roll out the carpet for you. The website is militaryaviationmuseum.org. During the summer and fall of 1941, some 300 men carrying civilian passports boarded ships destined for Burma. They were initially based at a British airfield in Tongu for training while their aircraft were assembled and test flown by the CAMCO personnel at Bengaladon Airport outside Rangoon. Chenault set up a schoolhouse that was made necessary because many pilots had lied about their flying experience, claiming pursuit experience when they had flown only bombers and sometimes much less powerful airplanes. They called Chenault the old man due to his much older age and leathery exterior obtained from years flying open-cockpit pursuit aircraft in the Army Air Corps. Most believed that he'd flown as a fighter pilot in China, although stories that he was a combat ace have not been verified. The AVG was created by an executive order of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. He didn't speak English, however, and Chenault never learned to speak Chinese. As a result, all communications between the two men were routed through Sun Mei Ling, or Madam Chang, as she was known to Americans, and she was designated the group's honorary commander. The group was comprised of three fighter squadrons of around 30 aircraft each, it trained in Burma before the American entry into World War II, with the mission of defending China against Japanese forces. The group of volunteers were officially members of the Chinese Air Force. The members of the group had contracts with salaries ranging from 250 a month for a mechanic to 750 for a squadron commander, roughly three times what they had been making in the U.S. forces. While it accepted some civilian volunteers for its headquarters and ground crew, the AVG recruited most of its staff from the U.S. military. Some of the pilots were also orally promised a bounty of 500 for each enemy aircraft shot down. However, no one knew if that would actually happen until they returned home and found the funds deposited in their bank. The group first saw combat on December twentieth, 1941, just 12 days after Pearl Harbor. It demonstrated innovative tactical victories when the news in the U.S. was filled with little more than stories of defeat at the hands of the Japanese forces and achieved such notable success during the lowest period of the war For both the U.S. and the Allied forces as to give hope to America that it might eventually defeat the Japanese. AVG pilots earned official credit and received combat bonuses for destroying 296 enemy aircraft while losing only 14 pilots in combat. Chenault preached a radically different approach to air combat based on his study of Japanese tactics and equipment. His observation of the tactics used by Soviet pilots in China, And his judgment of the strengths and weaknesses of his own aircraft and pilots. The actual average strength of the AVG was never more than 62 combat ready pilots and fighters. Chenault faced serious obstacles since many AVG pilots were inexperienced and a few quit at the first opportunity. However, he made a virtue out of these disadvantages, shifting unsuitable pilots to staff jobs and always ensuring that he had a squadron or two in reserve. The AVG had no ranks. So, no division between officers and enlisted officers existed. Chenault and the Flying Tigers benefited from the country's warning network called the best air raid warning system in existence. Starting from areas in free China, in hundreds of small villages, in lonely outposts, in hills and caves, stretching from near Canton through all free China to the capital in Chungking and to Lanchow, far northwest, were a maze of alarm stations equipped with radios and telephones that gave instant warning of the approach of Japanese planes. When the Japanese planes attacked, Chenault's doctrine called for pilots to take on enemy aircraft in teams from an altitude advantage, since their aircraft were not as maneuverable or as numerous as the Japanese fighters they would encounter. He prohibited his pilots from entering into a turning flight with the nimble Japanese fighters, telling them to execute a diving or slashing attack, and to dive away to set up for another attack. This dive-and-zoom technique was contrary to what the men had learned in the U.S. service, as well as what the Royal Air Force pilots in Burma had been taught. It had been used successfully, however, by Soviet units serving with the Chinese Air Force, and it was over China, flying against the fast and nimble Japanese Zeros, where Greg Boyington got his flying chops, flying the Curtis Tomahawk 2B, which had been attended for the British Royal Air Force in North Africa. The Tomahawk 2B was similar to the U.S. Army's earlier P-40B model, and there is some evidence that Curtis actually used leftover components from that model in building the fighters intended for China. The fighters were purchased without government-furnished equipment, such as reflector gun sights, radios, and wing guns. The lack of these items caused continual difficulties for the AVG in Burma and China. of the
1: famous Yankee Flying Tigers in China. For many months, their bullets held open the Burma Road, beating a deadly tattoo upon the plains of Japan's Air Force. Former Army, Navy, Marine officers, transport pilots, they're the last of the world's soldiers of fortune. Today, they're a part of America's flying forces fighting the Battle of China. Volunteering before the United States entered the war, these amazing young men have astounded the world with their deeds of heroism and daring. Their leader, 50-year-old General Claire Chennault, for five years advisor to the Chinese Air Force. His knowledge of Japanese aerial tactics he passed along to his American volunteers. Taking off from airfields literally paved by hand, the Tiger score for their first 90 days of fighting, 470 Jap planes for 15 of the volunteers. 50 grinning Tiger Shark planes, wired together with spare parts from 50 more, were all they had to start with. Fighting in teams of two, they concentrate their firepower. One reason for their amazing success against seemingly impossible odds. General Chanot mapping the aerial raids the Japs fear above all. American Flying Tigers!
0: AVG fighter aircraft were painted with a large shark face on the front of the aircraft. This was done after pilots saw a photograph of a P-40 of a No. 112 Squadron RAF in North Africa, which in turn had adopted the shark face from German pilots of the Luftwaffe's ZG-76 heavy fighter wing, flying Messerschmitt BF-110 fighters in Crete. The AVG nose art is variously credited to Charles Bond and Eric Schilling. About the same time, the AVG was dubbed the Flying Tigers by its Washington support group, called China Defense Supplies. The P-40's good qualities included pilot armor, self-sealing fuel tanks, sturdy construction, heavy armament, and a higher diving speed than most Japanese aircraft, qualities that could be used to advantage in accordance with Chenault's combat tactics. Chenault created an early warning network of spotters that would give his fighters time to take off and climb to a superior altitude where this tactic could be executed. After serving for one year with the Flying Tigers and racking up a large number of kills and valuable experience against Japanese fighter aircraft, in August of 1943, Boyington was assigned to command Marine Fighter Squadron 214. Initially called the Swashbucklers, they participated in the Solomon Islands campaign, flying out of Henderson Field on Guadalcanal. They were disbanded following their combat tour, and the squadron designation was given to the Marine Command on on a Spiritu Santo. The Black Sheep first gathered in September 1943 when Admiral William Bull Halsey asked that an additional Marine squadron be immediately dispatched to assist his hotly contested Solomon Islands operation. Normally, squadrons were formed in the U.S. and trained together extensively before heading overseas. But in the urgency of the situation, a squadron was hastily assembled from replacement pilots and remnants from other units. Its commander would be Major Boynton, Known simultaneously for his skill as a pilot, he was already an ace, and his talent for getting into trouble. He was without a unit because he broke one of his ankles while wrestling during a drinking spree. We'll return with our story, Pappy Boyington and the Black Sheep Squadron, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story.
1: We are... Thank
2: Boyington, better known as He wrote a memorable saga in aerial combat in the South Pacific in World War II There were few fighter pilots who did not know his name and the daring of Major Pappy Boyington famous Marine Ace. The stories that came back from skies where air battle raged were to become legends Pappy had left Pensacola to join Chennault's Flying Tigers. In 1943 came reinstatement in the Marines and a brilliant record of knocking down 25 Japanese planes before the year was out one kill short of the record held jointly by Marine Corps buddy Joe Foss and Eddie Rickenbacker of World War I fame.
0: After three weeks of hurried training, the original unit of 28 pilots, only three had combat experience, one intelligence officer and one surgeon, moved to its forward base at Munda in the Russell Islands on September 12. The squadron was not assigned any aircraft or ancillary personnel at first and flew to Guadalcanal and later the Russell Islands in borrowed planes that were in less than satisfactory condition. On the evening of September 13, 1943, the men of VMF-214 gathered in the commanding officer's hooch, during which time it was suggested that they needed a nickname. Originally, the squadron called itself Boynton's Bastards after its new commander after the fact that all of the pilots had been orphans and not attached to a squadron when they got together, and the fact they possessed few reliable planes and no mechanics. The following day, this new label was presented to the Marine Corps public information officer on the island at the time, Captain Jack DeShant, and found to be unacceptable because civilian newspapers would never print it. Deschamps then suggested the call sign, Black Sheep, because the expression meant essentially the same thing. The pilots ranged from experienced combat veterans with several air-to-air victories to their credit to new replacement pilots from the United States. Major Boynton and Major Stan Bailey were given permission to form the unassigned pilots into a squadron with the understanding that they would have less than four weeks to have them fully trained and ready for combat. They chose for their badge the Black Shield of Illegitimacy, the Bar Sinister, a black sheep superimposed, surrounded by a circle of 12 stars and crowned with the image of their aircraft, the F-4U Corsair, manufactured by Chance Voigt. The number of kills recorded by the black sheep quickly soared during the group's first combat tour. To garner favorable publicity, intelligence officer Walton provided Chicago Daily News correspondent George Weller with statistics about the unit and its various pilots, which Weller turned into a popular syndicated series that appeared throughout the United States and other allied nations. Walton, by the way, wrote a tremendous book called Once They Were Eagles, which I highly recommend you find. In an article in a 2006 issue of Aviation History magazine, Black Sheep pilot Fred Avey, who had joined the squadron in November of 1943, in time for its second combat tour, commented on the following. "'I came in with three other new pilots, and we were readily accepted by the unit. After all, they needed replacements for four men who had been killed in action. Ironically, I was the only one of the four new pilots who made it out alive.' The other three were shot down on the same day. A.V. fit in well with his new squadron. They called me Tiger, he said, because I was so mean in the air. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot because it meant you had to get up there and fight, and when I went into combat, I went for the nearest enemy plane I could find. Besides an aggressive attitude, A.V. believes a fighter pilot needed three talents, excellent eyesight, top-notch flying skill, and the ability to recognize a good situation from a bad one. "'For instance,' he said, "'you could be a long way below the enemy, "'but you didn't want to climb up at them "'because you might run out of airspeed and stall out. Four zeros flew over me in a tight formation near Bougainville, "'and maybe I could have shot down one or two, "'but the others would have nailed me. "'You have to know when to attack and when not to.' "'Avy said he believes the Black Sheep Squadron "'earned its excellent reputation "'because, he said, we flew harder "'and tried harder to be the best.' With Boynton's extensive combat experience, his colorful personality, and his friendly relationship with the press, the unit was always in the national spotlight. The Black Sheep Squadron fought for 84 days. They met the Japanese over their own fields and territory and piled up a record of 203 planes destroyed or damaged, produced nine fighter aces with 97 confirmed air-to-air kills, sank several troop transports and supply ships, destroyed many installations, in addition to numerous other victories. For their actions, the original Black Sheep were awarded the Presidential Unit Citation for Extraordinary Heroism in Action. Following their first combat tour, 26 pilots from the squadron left the airfield at Munda for a week of rest and relaxation in Sydney, Australia, where they holed up in the Australia Hotel. On January 3, 1944, Boynton tied Joe Foss's American record of 26 enemy planes destroyed before being shot down. Major Pappy Boyington
2: returned with other aircraft from an allied raid over the Japanese stronghold at Rabaul late in December 43. He had raised his total to just shy of the record, and now was anxious to get his 26th plane. He knew his tour of combat duty was drawing rapidly to an end, and he lived for one thing, to shoot down that last plane. (music) Boyington got his 26th plane January 3rd, 1944. But minutes later, he was shot down, landing in flames in a channel off Rabaul, where a Japanese submarine rescued him. He spent 20 months in the toughest enemy prison camps, but Pappy was to come back from the dead, finally liberated on August 29, 1945, to return to Oakland, California. They welcomed him like the hero he was and listened to his grim account of the infamous Ofuna prison. pretty rugged place, they half starved you and slugged you with ball bats and their fists and make you stand at attention while they beat you with a ball bat or hit you in the face with their fists. This went on practically every day we were there. Or they'd make you clean up the decks with a, with a swab while they chased you down the hall while you are bent over pushing a swab with a ball
0: bat. That's mighty uncomfortable. On that mission, 48 American fighters, including four planes from the Black Sheep squadron, had been sent on a fighter sweep over Raboul. Boynton was the tactical commander of the flight and arrived over the target at eight o'clock in the morning. In the ensuing action, the Major was seen to shoot down his 26th plane. He then became mixed in the general melee of diving, swooping planes, and was not seen or heard from again during the battle, nor did he return with his squadron. Boynton's wingman, Captain George Ashman, was killed in action. Following a determined but futile search, Boynton was declared missing in action. He had been picked up by a Japanese submarine and became a prisoner of war. The submarine was sunk 13 days after picking him up. According to Boynton's autobiography, he was never accorded official POW status by the Japanese, and his captivity was not reported to the Red Cross. He spent the rest of the war, some 20 months, in Japanese prison camps. After being held temporarily at Rabool and then Truk, where he survived the massive U.S. Navy raid known as Operation Hailstone. He was transported first to Ofuna and finally to Omori Prison Camp near Tokyo. During that time, he was selected for temporary promotion to the rank of lieutenant colonel. A fellow American prisoner of war was Medal of Honor recipient, submarine captain Richard O'Kane. At Ofuna, Boynton was interned with the former Olympic distance runner and downed aviator Louis Zamperini. The Black Sheep entered their second combat tour on January 8, 1944, five days after Boynton was shot down and captured by the Japanese. Exploits of this incarnation of the unit were loosely fictionalized in the 1970s television series Ba-Ba Black Sheep, later renamed Black Sheep Squadron, starring Robert Conrad as Boynton. There were 41 members during my tour, most of them at 20 or 21 years old and just out of flight school, Avey said. We were not all glory boys, the press created that, but we were not afraid to fly. That the black sheep soared into the air with such confidence is in large measure due to Boynton's training. AV had already logged thousands of hours in the air and tallied two kills before joining, but most of the men came to the unit with little actual experience. Thus, in the evenings or on rainy days, Boynton often gathered pilots for informal gab sessions, during which various combat situations were discussed. Boynton asked his men to dwell on all the problems they might encounter, and then figure out how to handle them. I was trying to get them to act by reflex, he later explained. You don't have time to think what to do. You have to act, sometimes in a split second. Boynton urged his men to be ready to attack at any time because a chance for a kill can occur and be gone in an instant. He warned them not to get into a loop with a zero because the enemy fighter was more maneuverable and would loop inside to splash them meaning shoot them down over the water, and to be wary of Japanese pilots doubling up on them. When you have an easy shot on an enemy plane and they're in a gentle turn, look for a catch. Instead, Boynton wanted his pilots to rely on the Corsair's speed and diving ability to get above the zero and come in on him in a high stern pass. Hold your fire until you're within good, close range, then let him have it and watch him burn. He said when they're hit right, they burn like celluloid. If you miss him, don't stick around to dogfight. Dive out. Get the hell out of there. Climb away and come back into the fight with some altitude and speed. Above all, Boynton reminded them, they flew fighters and should thus engage in combat whenever it would not endanger the primary mission. Calling the Corsair one of the sweetest fighters there is, he added that they should rely on the plane's sturdiness because it's built to take a beating and still bring you home. In a word, Boynton preached aggressiveness, something A.V. already possessed. As he replied to a Navy commander who asked him what his tactics were, "'Tactics? Hell, you don't need any tactics. When you see the Zeros, you just shoot them down. That's all.' Boynton's attitude carried across to the men. After the war, John F. Beggart credited the frequent informal discussions with improving most flyers. Edwin L. Olander, who shot down five enemy planes mentioned— I can recall no group I served with that had such esprit de corps. Glenn Bowers remembered. The black sheep wanted to work together, and nobody tried to push anything on anybody that he wouldn't do himself. Boynton deserved the acclaim he received, added Avi, citing the 28 Japanese planes Boynton shot down and his Medal of Honor as proof. Avy experienced few lulls during his time in the Southwest Pacific. He said, we did everything there. We intercepted whatever was coming at us in the Solomons, and we strafed places where Japanese were seen. We usually went up every day, sometimes twice. I flew so often that I got tired of sitting down. You can't stretch too well in those Corsairs, and even today people ask me why I stand so often. It's because of the war. Although he flew more than 200 missions with the Black Sheep and with other groups later in the year, A.V.'s skill as a pilot kept him out of injury. I never had to use my parachute, and I was never shot or wounded he said. A typical mission began with the briefing held the night before if the mission was scheduled for early morning and in the daytime if the planes were leaving later in the afternoon. Intelligence officer Walton informed the pilots of the day's objective, expected resistance, and times of departure. Normally, Avi and the others went out on strafing missions, escorted bombers to the Japanese bastion at Rabul, or scoured the skies for zeros in a fighter sweep. Afterward, Walton, aided by the squadron surgeon who handed out two ounce bottles of whiskey to the men, debriefed the pilots. Pilots strafed any enemy objects they spotted moving on land or water and secured in destroying 28 watercraft, some tightly packed with enemy troops, as well as damaging 125 Japanese positions in four airfields. Once over the island of Bougainville, where American marines and army units fiercely battled Japanese troops, A.V. sighted a camouflaged Japanese truck on a dirt road and dove to attack it. A Japanese soldier got out of the truck and aimed a machine gun at me, but I got him first. When you're in the air, it was either kill or be killed. We were thought to be the bravest pilots, but honestly, I was frightened all the time. The Black Sheep often escorted American bombers on runs over Rabul. These missions entailed flying long stretches. This could be very boring. But you had to keep watching for the enemy, AV said, followed by brief moments of terror while well over the target. The Japanese had five airfields at Rabul, so we always knew there would be all kinds of anti-aircraft. That flak was scary, it burst all around you, and was so thick you could hardly see the target. No matter which way you turned, there was flak, so the best tactic was just fly straight ahead, do your job, and get out. Dogfights presented a different type of challenge to AV and the other pilots. I flew into a lot of those, and I always wondered about two things. Would I make it back, and would my plane be intact so I could land it? When a dogfight began, I headed for the nearest zero and hoped my luck held out. There was no way I could check what was behind me, but I watched my front and sides as much as possible. Black Sheep John F. Bolt, credited with six kills. Named charged into a dogfight with the attitude that the first enemy he saw was a dead man and I didn't care where he was or how many protectors he had. He was a dead man. Luck played an important part in helping AB survive his numerous encounters. One time four zeroes flew a thousand feet above without spotting Navy. I would have been dead if they'd seen me, he said. A tremendous burst of anti-aircraft fire over Bougainville actually flipped his Corsair upside down but A.D. was able to right the plane and safely return to his base. He's thankful for his good fortune every time he thinks of a comrade who died when his plane exploded in mid-air. An ordnance man on the ground failed to attach the bombs properly. They went off prematurely and killed him. He died because of a mistake. He was the father of baby twins that he never saw. He only had their pictures. That could just as easily have been me. Although his squadron flew all types of missions, Boynton preferred to directly engage enemy fighters in individual battle. At first, the Black Sheep were limited to the airspace near the bombers they protected, but by mid-October, Boynton received permission to start his fighter sweeps, which Marine aviation historian Robert Sherrod described as a bold challenge to the enemy. There is nothing devious about a fighter sweep, Sherrod wrote. It is a head-on attack whose primary goal is to down enemy planes. The most furious fighter sweeps occurred near Raboul, during the first sweep, on December 17th, Boynton issued an open challenge to the Japanese over his radio, but none accepted the invitation. Convinced the 76 fighter planes posed too formidable a threat for the Japanese, Boynton led a smaller force of 48 planes for a sweep six days later. When the enemy rose to do battle, Boynton's pilots splashed 30 Japanese planes while losing only three Corsairs. Those three losses, though, particularly grieved Avy, as they were the three other replacement pilots with whom he had joined the Black Sheep, Major Pierre Carnegie, First Lieutenant James E. Brubaker, and First Lieutenant Bruce Foulkes. When he returned to base, Avi was asked to help gather some of their personal belongings to send back home. When a pilot died in action, his property was sorted into three piles, one for his valuables, such as money, a second for his non-valuable belongings, and a third consisting of government-issue equipment. The first two piles were sent to the quartermaster. However, if any material seemed useful to one of the black sheep, he took the item and left some money for the family in return. One of the guys had a phonograph and records, which I thought we could use, Avi said. The rest, though, I sent home to his family. I was now the only one left of the four. Avey's first kill with the black sheep happened on a Christmas Day sweep into Rabool. In the early holiday morning, Avi spotted a Japanese bomber above, "'situated between the squadron and heavy clouds. "'I could see his silhouette against the clouds "'and dashed over to be on his dark side. "'I wanted to come in out of the sun "'and get a good fix on him. "'I climbed into position "'and made my first pass, "'peppering him from wingtip to wingtip "'with all six machine guns. "'I actually flew so close to him on this run "'that I almost ran into him. "'As the Japanese started down, "'I made a second run and again shot up his wings. "'He crashed into the water and started to get out of the ruined plane, But I got him. His second kill came just two days later when Boynton led 44 Corsairs and 20 Navy Hellcots against Rabaul. Sixty Zeros greeted them, and in a furious melee, six enemy planes were down without a loss for the Black Sheep. A Zero jumped on my tail and started firing at me, said Avey. I could actually see the tracers going by. I hit the throttle to veer down, and the Japanese pilot was going so fast he zoomed right by me. He was now in front of me, and I shot him down. You always shot your guns in short bursts, never long ones, because those 650 caliber machine guns really slow down your plane. If you fired too long, you could also overheat the guns and cause them to malfunction. Air combat is so quick, and targets are darting by so fast that you really only need about two-second bursts. Life on the ground could sometimes be a bit unusual for the black sheep because of the unit's colorful characters. Boynton carried a reputation for getting into trouble, usually when he over-imbibed an alcohol, and the Husky intelligence officer Walton, a former Los Angeles police sergeant, was given his job with the unit, in part, to look after Boynton. In his book, Once They Were Eagles, Walton wrote that during the first night gathering, Boynton challenged any man who w- Boynton got pretty soused and challenged any man there to take him on in wrestling, and then thought twice... "'looked over at the huge Walton and said, "'Except you. "'That whole book was interesting. "'That was a good part of it. "'Other men broke the long monotony with crazy antics, "'such as the pilot who shipped home "'anything he could at government expense. "'Chris McGee, a happy-go-lucky individual "'who read books on philosophy and witchcraft, "'bought along a pile of hand grenades "'to toss at Japanese buildings "'when flying at low altitudes, "'and he constantly wore blue bathing trunks, "'tennis shoes, and a bandana. "'He always acted crazy,' But he was a good pilot," said Avey, of the man credited with nine kills, second only to Boynton. Boredom often was broken by a loosely formed group called the Coral Society, which stayed up far into the night in Boyington's tent, belting out all sorts of old songs—some raucous, others moving. One ditty parodied Yale's whiff-and-poof song: "We are poor little lambs who have lost our way, ba ba ba. Gentlemen, black sheep, off on a spree." "'Down from here to Kahili. God have mercy on such as we. Bah, bah, bah. "'Far from glamorous, living conditions in the South Pacific were horrible,' Avi said. "'There was nothing pretty about it, either coral rocks or jungle trees. "'Their bases at Munda, the Russells, or Vella Lavella were cramped, "'experienced heavy rains at times, and were sweltering in the heat "'because of their proximity to the equator.' "'Mosquitoes and big black ants were everywhere,' he said. "'At night we would catch six-inch salamanders and put them in our bedding. "'They helped keep the mosquitoes away. "'One morning one of our pilots was bit by a scorpion "'that had crawled into his pants overnight. "'When he put on his pants, the thing bit him. "'I also remember once on Vella Lavella, "'looking down at the other end of the runway "'and seeing a huge mass of red crabs crossing over to get to the sea. "'The food fit in with their miserable living quarters,' said Avy. "'although gradually everyone got used to it. "'Once, however, the unit ran out of food, "'and the black sheep had to eat Spam three times a day for a month. "'I haven't eaten Spam since,' Avy reflected. "'There wasn't much to do once it got dark,' he said. "'Our quarters were blacked out except for tiny blue lights on the floor, "'and we had no radio. "'It seemed like I was in the South Pacific all my life.' "'Some nights could stretch endlessly "'because the Japanese normally sent over planes "'to harass the exhausted pilots. "'When enemy planes were heard, AV and the others dashed for foxholes "'dug outside of their tents. "'I slept with a pistol under my pillow just in case. "'Early one morning a group of us gathered together "'to discuss our mission when we heard some planes. "'We all jumped into a large foxhole, "'but beating us to it was this dog "'that one guy kept around. "'It jumped quicker than we did. "'Rats were also common.' And sometimes, when the foxholes got very wet, rats would slip in but couldn't get out. When the black black sheep had to jump in the wet foxhole, they had to fight with the rats to throw them out. As the black sheep squadron neared the end of its second six-week tour, concern rose over Boyington's health. Reporters rarely left him alone as he neared the marine record for most kills by a pilot, and the constant strain of dealing with the press, in addition to strenuous combat missions, took a toll on the squadron leader. "'He flew missions every day for correspondence,' Avey said. "'They wanted him to break the record for downing Japanese planes. "'There were always four or five guys who wanted to interview him. "'I resented them because they should have let Boynton and us rest. "'They didn't think about what it was like for us. "'Boynton was tired and the time shouldn't have gone up, but he did. "'I wonder if that didn't have something to do with his being shot down and captured.' As previously mentioned, on January 3, 1944, Boynton took off on a mission accompanied by a new wingman whose plane was damaged by Zeros near Rabaul. As the wingman headed down to the sea, A.V. recalled, Boynton followed him yelling, Bail out! Bail out! The wingman didn't, but now Boynton was so low in altitude, the Zeros jumped all over him and got him. Four Zeros strafed Boynton in the water for almost 20 minutes before a Japanese submarine picked him up. The Black Sheep scoured the sky seeking vengeance for their fallen leader, strafing barges and land targets and checking out any rumors about downed airmen sighted at sea. Nothing turned up, however, and on January 6th, the Black Sheep carried out their final mission as a unit. In two six-week combat tours, VMF-214 accumulated a stellar squadron record of 1,776 missions and 168 planes destroyed or damaged, earning eight pilots ACE status and the squadron, a presidential unit citation. It took five kills to become an ace. The Black Sheep long had been recognized as one of the hardest-hitting and most eager teams of air fighters and a squadron which was nourished by the fighting competitive spirit of its lost skipper. The Black Sheep started as a squadron of nobodies, being formed from a collection of flyers and replacements on the spur of the moment. Within a matter of weeks, it became the best Japanese killing outfit in the Solomons, and— in some respects, the most unusual squadron to ever fly the South Pacific skies. When the war ended in August of 1945, Avery was at Pearl Harbor preparing to participate in the upcoming invasion of Japan. He remembers the day as though it were yesterday. "'A girl came up and cried on my shoulder. I told her I was going to the beach and asked if she wanted to come along. She couldn't, but she gave me the name of her girlfriend. The two of us went to the beach and had a party.' Hawaii was crazy that night. All the lights could be turned on, and cars were driving up and down streets, dragging wash basins behind for noise. People were swimming in the ocean at 2 a.m. After World War II, during which Avi received the Distinguished Flying Cross, he remained in the Marines and flew jets during the Korean conflict. Eventually, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel, Avi cringes at mention of the popular 1970s television show that pictured the unit as a hard-drinking bunch. Television made it look like all we did was party, but that was in no way true. We never went up drunk. The only thing accurate about the show was that we flew Corsairs. A.V. was not upset when the television show gave different names to the squadron's pilots because, he said, I did not want to be associated with the show, anyway. He and other black sheep survivors let Boynton, who had served as the show's advisor, know how they felt during a 1976 squadron reunion in Hawaii. We all gave him hell for allowing them to do what they did, Avy said. Boynton realized how upset we were and apologized to us. And he was not one to apologize very often. During mid-August 1945, after the atomic bombs and the Japanese capitulation, Boynton was liberated from Japanese custody at Omori Prison Camp on August 29th. Boynton returned to the United States at Naval Air Station Alameda on September 12, 1945, where he was met by 21 former squadron members from B.M.F. 214 That night a party for him was held at the St. Francis Hotel in downtown San Francisco that was covered by Life magazine. The coverage of the party marked the first time that the magazine had ever shown people consuming alcohol. Prior to his arrival, on September 6th, he accepted his temporary lieutenant colonel's commission in the Marine Corps. Shortly after his return to the U.S. as a lieutenant colonel, Boynton was ordered to Washington to receive the nation's highest honor, the Medal of Honor, from the President. The medal had been awarded by the late President, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in March of 1944, and held in the Capitol until such time as he could receive it. On October 4, 1945, Boynton received the Navy Cross from the Commandant of the Marine Corps for the Raboul Raid. The following day, Nimitz Day, He and other sailors and Marines were decorated at the White House by President Harry S. Truman. Following the receipt of his Medal of Honor and Navy Cross, Boynton made a victory bond tour. Originally ordered to the Marine Corps schools, Quantico, he was later directed to report to the Commanding General, Marine Air West Coast, Marine Corps Air Depot, Miramar, San Diego, California. He retired from the Marine Corps on August 1, 1947, and because he was specially commended for the performance of duty in actual combat. "'he was promoted to colonel. "'Boynton was a tough, hard-living character "'who was known for being unorthodox. "'He was also a heavy drinker, "'which plagued him in the years after the war "'and possibly contributed to his multiple divorces. "'He freely admitted that during the two years "'he spent as a POW, his health improved "'due to the enforced sobriety. "'He worked various civilian jobs, "'including refereeing and participating "'in professional wrestling matches. "'A heavy smoker for years,' Boynton died in his sleep, possibly from cancer complications, on January 11, 1988, at the age of 75, in Fresno, California. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery on January 15, 1988, in Plot 7A-150, with full honors accorded to a Medal of Honor recipient, including a missing man flyby conducted by the F-4 Phantom IIs of the Marine Detachment at Andrews Air Force Base. Before his flight from Fresno... VMA 214, the current incarnation of the Black Sheep Squadron, did a flyby. After the burial service for Boynton, one of his friends, Fred Loesch, looked down at the headstone next to which he was standing, that of boxing legend Joe Lewis, and remarked that old Pappy wouldn't have to go far to find a good fight. We hope you enjoyed this story of the true American hero and legend Greg Pappy Boynton and his heroic Black Sheep Squadron. You can find lots of great stories at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And stop by our Facebook page someday to say hi at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. We're always looking for new ideas. If you have one, please email us at 1001 Stories Podcast at gmail.com. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.